Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord. As Johnny uh, gave me the choice of a couple passages uh, to preach on in this series this summer, I thought I couldn't ask for a more meaningful and powerful passage to me personally. And in fact, in preparing the last couple of weeks, more than once I found myself even just kind of getting teared up a little bit at the impact of these truths um, on my life. And I hope that I can communicate some of that to you this morning as we look to God's Word in Ephesians 2. Pray with me, if you would, and we'll ask God to make that happen. Father, thank you for your Word, which is living and active and sharper than any knife or sword that we could imagine. I pray you do the miracle of teaching this morning, that you would take the one set of words you've put on my heart and mind and apply them individually to each of us according to our need for your high and holy purposes. In Jesus' name, amen. As a single adult, I had a friend who, we're talking early 20s, who inherited a trust of $400,000, which was mature when she turned 35 years old. Now, think a minute how that might Uh, affect your view of the future, your sense of security, financial security for sure. Um, Now in today's dollars, that's about $3 million, okay? 400,000 in the D.C. area doesn't sound like a lot. Three million is a little better. Um, She had a very different sense of financial security than I did, who had no savings, no investments. Thankfully, I had no college loans, but um, yeah. I can't think of anybody who wouldn't like to have $3 million. Think for a minute what you might do with it. Build a home or or help one of your kids or grandkids buy a home. Um, Money for college for your kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews perhaps. Um, Assist an elderly relative or friend. Hopefully, Hopefully also be just more generous in your giving. Not just of your money, but also yourself. You'd probably have a little more free time. Um, if you were in that situation, you'd sure feel more secure, be less anxious about your future. 
I cannot offer you $3 million this morning, but I can share with you about an inheritance that is infinitely more valuable. The Bible exhorts us to cultivate an eternal focus, not just a temporal, temporal, temporal one. The real you, the real me, my soul, my spirit, will live eternally, while these all material pursuits that occupy most of our time in reality will fade away. Most of us are just beginning to comprehend whether we've been looking at Jesus and looking at the Bible for 60 days or 60 years. If we're true, we're just beginning to comprehend all that God has done for us and all that he offers us in Jesus Christ. And that's what we call the gospel, all that God has done for us and all that we have in Jesus Christ. I hope these 10 verses in Ephesians that we'll look at together will help to inform us and to reform us as we grow together to be gospel-driven people. Paul's writing this letter to, in, to the Ephesians, uh, Ephesian Christians, about 30 years after Christ's crucifixion. Ephesus was a prosperous commercial port, about 300,000 people, one of the largest cities of the day, best known for the Temple of Diana, where people would come to worship. In fact, that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, most Ephesians were religious, following Diana worship or one of other many cults that uh, cultic practices. And as with most seaports, Ephesus was also known for its immorality and debauchery. And so it's to these people, these followers of Jesus Christ in this city that Paul is writing. In his characteristic style, Paul doesn't mince words. <laughs> he starts out, bang, you were dead. You were dead. Spiritually dead, talking about there, obviously, because they're still alive and reading his letter. But you were dead once. And what characterized you as being dead? He, he says, you walked in trespasses and sins. Now, that word trespass, we don't think of much unless we see a sign that says, do not trespass, okay? But um, we all trespass, whether I, th I think of one of my best friends who trespassed the covenant of his marriage early on in their marriage. Now, they made it, they stuck together, but it still has ramifications, and works. Our trespasses have ramifications. It can be something big like that, or it can be something small like this past week when I was disrespectful to Georgie and, and deceitful over setting the temperature on our air conditioning, on the thermostat, okay? I mean, and I had to go back and tell her, I, you know, I, I, I did that. And that's, I don't know if you have those uh, little wars uh, of who likes it colder and, and warmer. Um, but we all trespass. Um, we all sin. But not only that, he says, they follow the course of this world. Uh, now, that could be an evil and profane course, or that could be a moral and religious course. But they were following, they were doing, what they were practicing, how they were living was apart from God. Um, and that's an abomination to God, either of those, if we're not leaning on and looking to him. In fact, Martin Luther said it well. He said, the curse of the godless man can sound more pleasant in God's ears than the hallelujah of the pious. Talking about people who are self-righteous, pious in their own, trying on their own good works to please him. 
not only following the course of the world, but they followed the prince of the kingdom of the air. Satan, whom Jesus called the ruler of this world, and a liar and the father of lies, that's Jesus talking about Satan, okay, Um, is the prince over this earthly kingdom. The Bible makes that clear. And people are unwittingly under his control, under his influence. But King Jesus is saving, is redeeming, is rescuing people for his eternal kingdom. Under the influence of Satan, also they lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. What's that look like today? It's all about me. Why not? If it feels good, do it. I mean, however we think about that, doing what we think will bring temporal pleasure and will feel good to us. We were spiritually dead, but God, verse 4, but God. This conjunctive phrase, two little verses, two little words, is one of my favorite phrases in Scripture. God shows up. He takes the initiative. Paul knew something about this. Uh, You might recall he was uh, going to Damascus to hunt down Christians and uh, had a goal in mind and had the rest of his life probably planned out in his own mind. A religious leader, but God, knocked him to his feet, blinded him for a few days to get his attention. And Paul became one of the most fervent followers of Jesus and founded this church in Ephesus and is now writing to them uh, some years later. God moves in dramatic ways sometimes to get our attention. I have a friend from Down Under um, who lives in Philadelphia. Ray had early career success. As he said, I had more money than I had since. Uh, And in his thick Aussie accent, he worked hard, drank hard, played hard. But God began to get his attention. Because of thick traffic, Ray missed a flight from Philadelphia to New Orleans, which ended up crashing, and everyone on board was killed. The next year, at age 26, his plane from Philadelphia to Newark was delayed because of mechanical difficulties, and he missed his connecting flight from Newark to New Hampshire, which ended up crashing, and everyone on board was killed. What are the odds of that? You'd think God would get your attention? No. It was a year later, in an automobile accident, where the whole left side of his body was so crushed, and he'd lost six and a half pints of blood. Doctors said he would never uh, survive. God began to work in his heart. In the hospital, Ray told God, if I get out of here alive, I will give my life to you. And as a friend picked him up some weeks later and was driving him to his apartment, um, he said, pull over here, Michael. He said, what, what's wrong? He said, just, just pull over for a minute. And he stopped and said, God, I'm out of the hospital. I told you I'd give you my life. Here it is, take it. And Ray has been a fervent a believer, a fervent witness for Christ, sharing that his story and sharing all that God's been teaching him since then with literally thousands of people in individually and in other contexts 
as a businessman in Philadelphia all these years. Sometimes God dramatically has to work dramatically to get our attention. Well, look at how Paul describes this God who pursued him, who pursued Ray, who pursues each of us. Um, in verse 4 to, uh, to eight, 7, uh, God is rich in mercy, he says. That, that mercy, the word for mercy, compassion, kindness, blessing. God is rich in mercy. He's not miserly with it. He, he has a great love with which he loved us. He repeats that. A great love with which he loved us. A love which seeks our highest good. The highest good of the one loved. What we call agape love. And that's especially uh, extended to the undeserving. Okay? God loved us with a great love. By grace, he says, we've been saved. Free favor, undeserved generosity. And then he says the immeasurable riches of grace in kindness. He doesn't just say grace, but he says the imme- not just the riches of grace, but the immeasurable riches of grace. The superlatives. It's, it's like it's beyond comprehension. This is the God. And, and then he says again, by grace, you've been saved. And it's a gift of God. Again, this generous God giving, wanting to give to us. One of my favorite verses of Scripture, kind of one of my life verses is in Romans eight thirty-eight. And I don't have a slide for this, but he says, um, for um, he, God, who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all. Look, picturing the cross there, giving Christ to die for us. He who did not spare his own son, only son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? God is a giving God. It's the argument from the greater to the lesser. He's already given us the greatest gift he can give in Jesus Christ. How will he not also with him freely give us all that we need? That's, the na- that's who this God is that Paul's talking about. And what a contrast between humankind's desperate position in the first three verses here and God's character of mercy, love, generosity, kindness. In fact, Psalm 103, which was, was read earlier, we see those same qualities. God is gracious and loving, merciful, compassionate. This is the God who is reaching out to each of us. It's, it's pretty overwhelming, and, uh, and it's true, and it's true. This is who God is, and it's so hard for me to keep all of that in my mind as a finite, created man in this earth, the, the, my, an accurate view of God. Earlier in my career... I partnered several times with Josh McDowell. Some of you have heard of him, who's a speaker and author. Um, and he set out as a young adult to disprove the Bible to some Christian friends who were trying to influence him for Christ. Well, in the process of that, he ended up being captured and being pursued by God and coming to know Jesus. Uh, he writes this. He says, most people have not rejected Christianity, but rather a caricature of it. I'm convinced that most people have a distorted view of who God is and who Jesus is. And you and I are the ones that he has called to to show people, to share with people the truth about God. And this, Paul has a great grasp of who God is, as we can see here. Well, getting back to the passage, um, let's look at it from a different angle. Pretend I'm an English teacher just for a minute, okay? 
my wife was a middle school English uh, major, but, um, and here I'm indebted to a commentary, an excellent commentary by Harold Honer, best known as father of David, our own David Honer, uh, grandfather of uh, Caleb, Jonathan, Christina, Sarah, and Joseph. Um, but in the Greek, the language Paul wrote in, uh, the first seven verses of this passage are one long sentence. Now, chapter and verses weren't added till the 13th century. Okay, so, I mean, it's just, it's just out there. Um, and that was for us to help find and study and read the scriptures and be on the same page. They're running a printing press then, of course, but we do it today. Um, the first three verses of this are kind of an introductory clause, the first of these seven verses, where, we seem, where we've seen Paul make inescapably clear the great need that we have. And finally, in verse 4, the subject of this long sentence comes in, God. And he says, but God. Um, and then there are three verbs. He made us alive, made alive, raised up, and seated. And we are the object of each of those verbs. You and I and all of mankind. So it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, kind of parenthetically, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Saved. Rescued from danger. Picture drowning at sea and being rescued, being saved. Um, in fact, this is the very word that Peter used when, uh, you might recall, Jesus was in a boat. Uh, I mean, they were in a boat, and Jesus walks on the water, and he says, hey, Peter says, hey, if it's you, Lord, tell me to come out. And he says, come, Peter, and he starts walking, and then all of a sudden he panics, starts sinking. And what's he say? Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Um, and that's, that's, that's the concept here. Jesus, God wants to save us. Made us make us alive, save us. Raise us up together with Christ, and then seated us together with him. Now, we can't see it in English, but each of these three verbs has the prefix S-Y-N in the Greek. S-Y-N, which means in union with or um, together with. We use the word synchronized, okay? Acting together in the same time. Or synonymous, having the same meaning or together in meaning, okay? This emphasizes our relationship with him. And in English, they only use together once because probably just for repetition. I'm not sure why in the translations. But literally, God made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up together with Christ, and he seated us together with Christ. We were dead. God makes us alive. A personal relationship, a new life. In Christ, together with him. Now, we kind of can get a, a feel for that. We talk a lot about that. But these next two things, we don't talk a lot about. What does it mean to be raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly realms? And, and he says, he raised us up, past tense. Wait a minute, that's going to happen in the future, isn't it, when I die? But what, how, how's, this, how's this possible? Um, Paul's describing here our legal relationship with Christ. Kind of like your relationship with a defense attorney, okay? Um, he or she represents you. You, you sign up, you, 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 know, you sign a contract, they're going to represent you, and depending on their skill or not, you win or lose the case. 
but you're leaning on their expertise. You're, you're connected with them in a legal sense in this case. And so because we are in Christ, God connects us with Christ. He identifies us with Christ. Jesus Christ represents us before God the Father, and God sees us as fully in him. In fact, this small book of Ephesians, if you haven't read it lately, I commend it to you, only six chapters. In that six chapters, about 90 times the word in is used. That's a huge theme here, in Christ. All that we have in him, all that we are in him. Um, One illustration that helped me get my mind around this, we know that there are two realms. There's a spiritual realm in our universe, and there is a the physical realm in which we live day to day. <clears throat> the invisible spiritual realm, the visible sp- physical realm. Picturing two parallel lines here, the lower one representing the physical realm and the upper one representing the spiritual realm. Now, the stick figure on that lower line represents Corky Eddins walking through life and coming to know Jesus. Okay? Meeting Jesus. Let me expand on that a minute. Um, I was... Born and raised in Huntington, West Virginia. Um, we were a wonderful family, had limited financial resources, were always in church on Sunday and Sunday evening, youth group. Um, my best understanding of being a Christian was trying harder. Uh, my good deeds outweighing my bad deeds, hopefully, um, like 95, 98% of the people probably in the world have that concept of what it means to be a Christian. There were no college graduates in our family, and it was my mom who had this vision of our, the three of us being able to go to college, preferably out of state to college, to have that experience um, and life enriching. Also, not just the experience, but to make money, to be able to get a degree, make money, and have a more secure future, to be able to provide for our families more than my parents had been able to provide for us. Um, God, but God, had a different reason for me to go to Virginia Tech uh, in 1967. Um, I met some other students there who talked about Jesus Christ as more than just a good example, more than just a role model to follow. Um, I began with an upperclassman to read the Gospel of John. In fact, a few of us met once a week for six weeks or so to talk about it. But he and I would meet outside of that even to talk and read the Gospel of John. And it was over the period of six, eight weeks that I came to not just know about Jesus, but to actually know him, to meet him, to, to uh, walk with him. It's kind of like a, I guess, more like a gradual friendship developing. And as I got to know him better and better, I began to see him change my life. But God, you know, what, there's many but God moments in our lives, not just that time of coming to know him uh, in a personal way, going from darkness to light. God says in Colossians, God delivers us from the domain of darkness and transfers us to the, to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There's a huge transfer that happens when we come to know Jesus Christ. In fact, the instant I believed, three things became true of me in the spiritual realm that were not true before. And that's these three things, these three truths. God made me alive together with Christ. 
spiritually alive. I begin to see the signs of spiritual life in me. I, I find myself thinking about God when I didn't think about him before or saying a prayer or wanting to pray. Um, I started understanding the Bible, which was like reading somebody else's mail before that. Um, I, I enjoyed being with other Christians instead of avoiding them. I found myself alive in new ways. But he not only made me alive together with Christ, he raised me up together with Christ. And this helped me understand this. Just as Christ died physically for us who were dead spiritually, okay, so Christ was raised up physically so that we might be raised up spiritually and seated together with him in the heavenly realms in a, in the, in the, in the legal sense of that. I can only begin to grasp this mystery that God sees me so identified with Christ that he sees me as sitting right there with Christ at his right hand. My position in Christ begins the moment I move from death to life. But my condition in this world is going to vary day to day. How I'm thinking, how I'm feeling, what I'm saying, what I'm doing. As I follow Jesus and stops and starts and have ups and downs in my spiritual growth. But my position remains constant. That which is true about me never changes. The truest thing about me. And then when I take my last breath and this body stops, I continue in Christ, fully present with him for all eternity. Paul continues in verse 8 and 9, saying the same thing in other words. He says, by grace you have been saved through faith. These are our memory verses, 8 and 9 for this week. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works that no one can boast. By God's unmerited favor, we have been saved through faith, trusting in what Jesus has done for us. And it's a gift God offers. I can't do anything to earn it. If, if, if you were to offer me a gift and I'd say, oh, that's very nice. How much can I pay you for it? Or can I come, you know, uh, weed your garden for you and, and just in, in, in to, to make up for this nice gift, you, you'd be offended. No, a gift is freely given and we can't, there's no expectation of earning or trying harder. We're all beggars finding bread at the foot of the cross. We're all beggars finding bread at the foot of the cross. Not one of us can boast that we're better than anybody else. And finally, Paul tells us why God is ma- makes us alive together in Christ. He says, so we can reflect Jesus to those around us. Each of us is God's workmanship, as in um, uh, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. In fact, that word workmanship in the Greek is poema. Does that sound like a word? You've heard poema, from which we get our word poem? Okay. Each of us is a special work of art, a personalized poem through which God wants to speak to the world and show his creativity, his love, his originality. Um, A -a one-of-a-kind creation to show his beauty and love, his healing and helpfulness. We are to walk in the paths, Paul says, in the paths that God has prepared for us, 
showing and sharing his light and life and love with those who are walking alongside us. Note, note here, we're to walk in these good works, not work in them. We're to walk in these paths, not work in these paths. We're not doing a work for God, trying harder, but rather God is doing his work in and through us. That's, that was the amazing freedom that I began to experience as a college student when I came to know Jesus. It wasn't my trying to be like Jesus. No, it was allowing him to reproduce his life in and through me by the power of his spirit who came to live within me at that point. No pressure to perform for God or for others. Sometimes God works through our weakness and our pain, not just our joys and our successes. Georgie and I lived in Vienna, Austria. We were there, we'd been there uh, two years, I guess, and I was involved in a ministry to Eastern Europe. That was, Vienna was the gateway to the East, and I would travel regularly to Romania and other countries to help the persecuted church. We were trying to pick up some German, but neither of us was real satisfied with where we were with our German. Um, And Georgie, who had had, at that point, probably five or six years, had had hypoglycemia, a low blood sugar condition, was really going through some spikes and some problems, and the doctor decided she needed to be in the hospital for a couple days for tests. Well, long and short of it is they're getting ready to dismiss her, and she couldn't understand what they were trying to communicate with her about follow-up. And so they had to get a lady out of the lab to come who was fluent in English. And as she was reading that and talking with Georgie, um, she said, oh, my husband and I in three months are going to uh, Southern California. We're going to the United States. I've never been there. Um, he's going to do a, a second, um, po- uh, do- what, what do doctors do? And not internship, but fellowship, a specialized fellowship um, for a year. And uh, Georgie said, well, we've got some really good friends who live in Southern California. If you'd like to meet them, we don't know anybody. We'd love to meet them. Well, we ended up having Michaela and Rudy over for dinner. They ended up having us a month later over for dinner before they left. We got chatted, talking, and, and were able to share a little bit about our spiritual journey, but it was a new relationship. But we connected them with Abby and Kevin in Southern California. They ended up bringing them into their home in a small group on a weekly basis taking them to church with them occasionally. Um, And Rudy, when they came back a year later, said it was in that context of seeing, outside of my own cultural context here, and seeing Christians who were alive and active, I came to know Jesus. And and I've seen him begin to change my life. That was a weekend, a long weekend, they came to visit us soon after they came back. And it was that weekend, as Georgie and Mickey, her nickname is, we're talking, that Mickey, the coin dropped, okay? Or it all came into focus for Mickey as she was talking to Georgie, and Mickey decided to give her life to Jesus as well. Georgie was in the hospital for medical tests, okay? But God had another reason for that. She was embarrassed her German was so bad. She didn't like being sick and what she was feeling. But God had another purpose for all that she was going through in order for her to meet Mickey and for Mickey and Rudy to eventually come to know him. What difference 
does it make to be alive, to be raised up, to be seated with Christ? I'm a new person. I have a new capacity to love. I have a clean conscience. There's no more guilt. There's freedom, the freedom of being forgiven, past, present, and future because of what Christ has done. It's interesting in this passage, Paul doesn't mention redemption or the cross. He talks about God's grace. We've been saved by grace through faith, not trying harder, but by trusting him. But there's a freedom I have. I have God with me, living in me, his Holy Spirit, reproducing the life of Jesus in and through me. I have peace of heart, peace of mind. I'm less anxious. Yeah, I still get anxious. You know, I I was anxious before the sermon, okay? Um, But less anxiety. Uh, I, I have wisdom, supernatural wisdom that God promised each of us. I know for certain that I have an inheritance that is imperishable and will never fade away, reserved for me in heaven. I don't need to fear the future. That which is the truest thing about me in the spiritual realms is never going to change, no matter what my experience here on earth takes me through. Better than the security of $3 million in a trust, which will mature in eight years. Much better. My emotions might change. I might make wrong choices. I'll have problems. I do. But I am secure in Christ. God views me. He sees me as seated with Christ, holy, righteous, and blameless, with Christ, in Christ, forever and ever. And, and I would encourage you, if you're just thinking about this, if this, this, you're thinking, this is craziness. What? It's okay. It's okay. I just encourage you to take the next step in your own spiritual journey, your own spiritual growth toward Christ or in Christ. And... Hopefully, by his grace, we will all be more mature, more fully formed as gospel-driven people. Please pray with me. Father, it is overwhelming to think all that you are and all that you've done for us. We praise you that you are gracious, that you're merciful, that you're compassionate, that you're a giving God. We praise you that you've given us the greatest gift you could ever give us. And we can know that with Christ, you want to freely give us everything else we need for life and godliness. Might our minds be wrapped around this and we ask you to make this happen for Jesus' sake. Amen.
Amazing love.